I want to start off today, and, and hopefully today I'm going to be, my goal is to be quieter than I normally am. <clears throat> Stop laughing! No. <laughs> but um, it, it's probably because of the gravity of what I'm preaching that I want to be a little quieter today, and, and that's my goal. Hopefully I can, hopefully I can do that. As we consider the, the, this passage that we're going to be looking at today, I want to start off by talking about this argument that people sometimes make um, like this. And you may have heard this. Ron's probably taught about it in his apologetics class even. How could a loving God blank? Right? How could a loving God blank? How could a loving God, for instance, how could a loving God allow 9-11 to happen? Or how could a loving God let this person get sick and die? Or how could a loving God do this or that or the other thing? Things that we, in our mind, consider not so loving. I mean, these are things like sickness, death, War, famine, natural disasters, and, and things like that. We, we say, how could a loving God do that? And so as I go through this first opening illustration, I want to keep all of that in mind, that how could a loving God do blank? And it's death, war, famine, natural disasters, things like that. Because we're going to be, the death, war, natural disasters, famine, things like that is what we're going to keep in this first illustration. So that's one reaction when a death happens or war happens or famine happens or natural disaster happens or this happens or that happens. People can react in that way. That reaction is what I would call the rejection of God. Disbelief. If God was a loving God, he wouldn't do this. And, and we see that he does these things in Scripture and so that, that can't be God. That's no God that I would serve. That's no God that I would follow. That's not God. That's one reaction that people have to this kind of thing sometimes. And I think that's why Ron, in his class, it probably touches on it in apologetics. I know tons of apologetics class do touch on it, the the concept of suffering and all of those things. Another argument or, or, or reaction to that, how could a loving God allow death, famine, natural disaster, et cetera, et cetera? Another reaction... Is, is kind of the opposite extreme. People say, well, how could God not do those things? Of course God's going to smite us, evil people, you know. This is the really extreme example of this would be like Westboro Baptist Church, though they really aren't reacting to those kind of things. They're really just trying to start lawsuits uh, and, and make a lot of money there. But you know what I'm talking about, those, those people that are like, yeah, God's going to smite these dirty, rotten sinners, and, and of course he's going to do all of this stuff, right? Because God hates sin, and he's going to just beat everybody down. This is what I call the, the spirit of legalism or a spirit of religion. This isn't a good approach either. There's a third reaction how could a loving God do this? And, and this is, people say, oh, well, they're the signs of the time and Jesus is going to come back and this is just showing that the end days are near and, and, and we just have to get ready. And when this goes to an extreme, uh, people go out and they sell their stuff off and they spend all their money and they don't plan for any kind of future thing because Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. 
you know, look, we know that Jesus' return is imminent, which means it could happen at any given moment. But he has not called us to live irresponsibly in light of his imminent return. We live like he could come back at any moment, but we also need to live like it might be a while as well and not just go throw everything away. Uh, Peter, in one of his epistles, actually addresses this and says when people do that and they get this whole Jesus is going to come back and making all these predictions, Peter addresses this in one of his epistles. He said, scoffers will say, where is the second coming? We're actually undermining the gospel when we do that. Because every time we're wrong, people go, y'all don't know what you're talking about. Right? But this is that kind of... And now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is going to come back, and I think we need to pay attention to the signs and all those things. But it kind of goes to the hyper-prophecy kind of message. And you've seen those hyper-prophecy things get really out of control. I mean, we are 14, almost 15 years past when we're all supposed to be dead. Right? Because Y2K, it was going to be over. Remember? And people went and spent up all their money, did all that kind of stuff, and made really dumb decisions. Right? And then it happened again. We're two years, getting ready to be three years past should have been dead. Because the Mayan calendar, you know, ends in 2012. And so we're all dead. You know? This is that kind of hyper-prophecy thing. And, and, And listen to me. I believe in biblical prophecy. But biblical prophecy is not there for you and I to be able to predict exactly when things are going to happen. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. It's there for when it starts happening, we'll go, ooh, and we'll have faith and not give up and not lay down and and just give up the victory to the enemy when it all starts happening. Let me just give you a little example of, of kind of this to an extreme in another way. This hyper-anticipation, seeing signs, importance in everything. And, and uh, do you guys remember uh, maybe 20 years ago, the U.S. currency, they put this little plastic strip in? Do you know how many people I had tell me that was the mark of the beast? People, Christians, were teaching that was the mark of the beast, that little plastic strip. We are nowhere close to having the mark of the beast. The entire planet has to come into a one world currency system first, I think. Because it says you cannot buy or sell without it. So it's going to take more than just it happening in our country. But this is that hyperactive, you know, hyper prophecy thing. I mean, there's going to come a time when there's a one world economy that you're not going to be able to buy or sell without taking the mark. I mean, scripture says it, and so we know it's true. But this hyper-prophetic kind of viewpoint gets us really kind of spinning out of control a little bit and and gets us seeing like the gloom and doom everywhere. So this isn't a good reaction either. The fourth reaction when death and famine and all those kind of things come and and these bad things happen is uh, the bury your head in the sand reaction, the ostrich. Remember the, uh, remember the, I won't remember what cartoon it was, but the ostrich would always just, boop, stick his head down in the dirt and everything would be going on around him. You know, just the bury your head in the sand. I mean, let's just not even think about it, right? Everything just comes without ever asking, why is this happening? And you've probably seen people like that. And it's just like this whole, like, if I just ignore it, it's going to be all good. That's not a healthy reaction either. 
right, to this stuff. Just to say, well, I'm just going to take it in stride, you know, and it just it is what it is. This is the bury the head in the sand. This is what I would actually call complacency or lukewarmness. Now, just as a little sidebar, in the book of Revelation, you often hear people teach about the lukewarm church, and they say that they would that either, they said that Christ says that I would that you were either cold or, or hot, and they paint out cold as bad, like just totally dead, and they paint out hot as like the great thing. Okay, it's like totally inappropriate. It's not what Jesus is saying there at all. Cold is good, hot is good. He's actually making a reference to their water system was piped in from, to that city was piped in from aqueducts that from hot springs. And when it got to town, it was lukewarm and nobody wanted to drink it. They'd go out in the hot healing waters and soak in them, but when they wanted a drink, they wanted something cold and refreshing. Jesus says that you need to be like cold and refreshing or you need to be like hot and healing. Right? But when we just kind of take stuff in stride, we're kind of lukewarm. We're not, we're not refreshing anybody. We're not healing anybody. We're just kind of like, eh. You know what I mean? Does that make sense, what I'm saying? This kind of complacency, lukewarm kind of model. And I'm not trying to beat up anybody who's taught in Revelation that, that cold was bad. That's not my intention. My intention is for you to understand this middle thing is the bad thing. And the extremes are actually acceptable. In this particular instance, the extremes aren't always acceptable. <laughs> the fifth reaction... When stuff like this happens, God would never do that. God is gracious and loving, and he would never do that. This is what we call hyper-grace. This is what in a sermon a while ago I referred to antinomianism. It's the hyper-grace, like God is not the God of the Old Testament anymore. He's not this, you know, this, he doesn't do wrath. He doesn't do all of those things, etc., etc. But, friends, I- I've read the end of the book. He destroys the world in fire. I've read the book of Acts. He strikes down Ananias and Sapphira for one lie. So this hyper-grace message isn't isn't an acceptable message either. It's actually very much like the Gnostic heresy, for those of you who are fancy yourselves to be theologians a little bit. The hyper-grace message is a resurgence of the, of the heresy of Gnosticism. But, so this isn't a good reaction either. And then the sixth reaction is the disciples' reaction, a true disciples' reaction. In John chapter 6, verse 60, we see the disciples react to something, true disciples react to something in this manner. They say, this... Is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And we know that that is an appropriate reaction because Jesus sits down with them and he says, you know, many people left him because of what happened. And he said, are you guys going to leave too after they said that? And they said, we can't leave. I mean, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. See, the sixth reaction is the true disciples' reaction that reacts and says, okay, I will take this in stride and I will, and I will, under, I will say, okay, this is true and I'm struggling and I want to understand it. So God, teach me what it means. Speak into my heart. Show me. Open my heart. Open the eyes of my heart. 
This is the reaction that I call, this is a tough pill to swallow, but we must, so Lord, help us understand. This is a tough pill to swallow, but we must, so Lord, help us understand. The reason this is important is because as we move through the next passage, we have to be honest with ourselves about this answer to my next question as we read this passage. And here's the question. What's my reaction? What's my reaction? When we read this next passage of Scripture, what is going to be your reaction? I need you today with yourself to be honest with your own reaction where are you at on the scope of this? Now, I have to be fair and say that the second rea- or the third reaction, the one about the hyper-prophetic, probably doesn't apply to this passage. So when we get to the end, you'll only see like five reactions because I took the hyper-prophetic out because it didn't really go. But we have to look at what our reaction is to this. I would argue that if we want to grow in the Lord, that only one of these reactions that we've talked about is an acceptable reaction for a disciple. And it's going to be our job as individuals, you individually have to go over the next week and say, Lord, help me to have the right reaction. This is, I, I gotta be honest with myself and say, this is my initial reaction, but Lord, I want to be in the reaction number six. This is a tough pill to swallow. But your word says it, so I'm going to believe it. Now help me understand it. Because if we don't get ourselves in that place, it's never going to be anything that we're going to learn out of this. It's really called being teachable. And this is one of those passages that's really hard to be teachable on. So we're going to ask as we pursue Jesus to change what our initial reaction is. So what's the passage of Scripture? It's Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. And I want you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to that. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from another translation, and that's okay. Follow along as best you're able. Here's what the Scriptures say. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And this is where it even gets tougher. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? I'm going to talk more about this later, but in that sentence, I I, I struggle with this, and and I wanted to explain this away in a different way, but I can't. It says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? That's the person. The person who spurned the Son of God is the subject, is the subject of that sentence. Now listen to this person. 
and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. That he in the Greek is third person referring to the person who was spurning the Son of God. By which he was sanctified. This is a person who was sanctified by God's blood and is now spurning him. And outraged the spirit of grace. That's why I want to be quieter today and not get so loud while I'm preaching because this is tough. This is really tough. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Not unbelievers. His people. And that's tough. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. As I pray, I want you to ask the Lord, what I'm going to ask the Lord, what's my reaction? Be honest with yourself about your reaction today. I explained to you my reaction, and part of that is I wanted to try to explain the he away as being somebody who wasn't a believer. But the Greek syntax would not let me do it. I walked downstairs in the basement at one point and said, Sarah, I need to read this sentence to you and tell me who this subject is. Because I didn't want it to be about us. But it is. And it's tough. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand our own reaction to this passage. Help us to figure out where we're at. And Lord, I pray against any kind of spirit of shame and condemnation for being honest with ourselves and with you about where we're at in this because that's not what you want out of us. You don't want us to be ashamed and condemned. But Lord, you want to grow us. So help us to understand where we're at. And Lord, help us to come to a place where we realize that this is a tough pill to swallow, but swallow it we must, and then come to understand what it means. Lord, we don't want to just ignore this passage. We want to understand. So help us in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a harsh passage. It's a really harsh harsh passage. New Testament scholar and theologian N.T. Wright argues this about this passage. In the ancient Jewish codes of law and sacrifices, it was made very clear that the sin offering, the central sacrifice dealing with sin, was specifically to cover sins that were committed either ignorantly or unwillingly. The key passages are found in Leviticus 4, Numbers 15, and elsewhere in the same books. If people sinned deliberately, knowing that something was wrong and choosing to do it nonetheless... There was no sacrifice prescribed for them. Such a person was in the old phrase to be cut off from among the people. In other words, put to death. There was no place for people who deliberately and knowingly flouted the law of God by which Israel was both defined and defended. All this background is in mind as Hebrews launches into the most fearsome warning in the New Testament, except for some of those that were the words of Jesus himself.
This is one of the most fearsome warnings in the New Testament, except for some of the things Jesus himself said. If you have a red-letter Bible where the words of Jesus are in red in your Gospels, Jesus says some crazier stuff than this. So much so that hyper-grace adherents actually say that there are a ton of Jesus' words that don't apply to us as New Covenant believers. Major preachers of megachurches saying that doesn't apply to us as New Testament believers. Jesus' words, they don't apply because they're so fierce. I want, I'm reading all this to let you know that we acknowledge as, as leaders, as church leaders, pastors, theologians, college professors, all of that, we acknowledge that this is a fearsome warning. It is a crazy warning. Warning. With this in mind, we must admit several things, and I've already talked about this a little bit. This passage is a grim warning about the dire consequences of sin. It is a grim warning about the dire consequences of sin. By the way, I am not going to expound upon this passage hardly at all this week. We're going to be looking at this passage probably for three or four weeks. Today, our goal is just to figure out what our initial reaction is. I figure if it's this tough, we probably ought to slow down and take some time to process it, right? Rather than try to hurry through it. So we acknowledge this passage is a grim warning about the dire consequences of sin. It is a passage about punishment, one that likely elicits fear in readers. Verses 29 through 11, or 20, excuse me, 29 through 31. How much more, or how much worse punishment? It is not the word for discipline. It is the word for punishment. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified in his outrageous spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is about punishment. And it is meant to elicit fear in the readers. That is why the author of Hebrews concludes the passage with, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is not as a, it is not a, this is an awe and reverence thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers of our time, or, well, he's not of our time, but in American history, sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of fear. And, and when I'm acknowledging that, I want you to acknowledge that. This is about punishment and it is and it is it is trying to elicit fear. The author of Hebrews is trying to elicit fear, a fear of God, not a fear of I don't know where my paycheck's going to come from, not a fear of I might die or any of that stuff, but a fear of God and friends, we are supposed to be afraid of God. I know my earthly dad loves me. 
I know that he was doing everything he could to raise me the best way that he knew how and everything that he did was out of love. But can I tell you, I feared him. My dad could use a belt well. And it was not child abuse. And my dad wanted me to fear those consequences and it was right for my dad to want that. Because sometimes fear is the only thing that will keep us in line. Now listen, love is a better way. Love is a better way. But sometimes love is a little bit too easy on us. And we need some correction. At least I did. I don't know about the rest of you. But uh, Scripture says that we do too. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Which is not saying you should spare the rod and spoil your child. It's saying if you spare the rod, you will spoil your child. And spoil is not a good thing, it's a bad thing. The, the third thing that I want to acknowledge is it's a warning for God's people. It is not a warning for unbelievers. This is a warning for God's people, not unbelievers. It is a warning for you as a born-again child of God, not for the lost community. And you have to be honest with your reaction. And here's where your reactions really start welling up. Well, God doesn't want me to be afraid. God doesn't want me to be to be taking these things to heart. I mean, we have whole doctrines that spring up about this. We have whole doctrines that spring up about we are not going to be here as the church during the tribulation period because God would never want us to go through that. Really? He didn't take the children of Israel through the ten plagues in Egypt? Really? Noah got what? Translocated with his family to heaven while the flood happened and then got sent back down? Really? I mean, so we've created whole doctrines about how God wouldn't let anything bad happen to us. You think he loved Jonah? Raise your hand if you think he loved Jonah. I think he loved Jonah. He got eaten by a huge fish. That's not really a nice thing. Did Jonah come out the other side? No, 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 no. Not like you people are thinking. I saw like... See, this is why I look at faces for recognition. People are like, really? <laughs> no, 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 no. I meant the other side of the trial, not the other side of the fish. <laughs> this is a warning for God's people. Now listen, I don't, I'm not trying to get you to be happy about this warning for God's people, but you have to accept that it's a warning for God's people. There is nothing linguistically in the Greek that would indicate anything else. I tried my hardest to read this where it would indicate this is for unbelievers. But it is not. It is for the person who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he or she was made holy and is outraging the Spirit of grace. It is for the person who is using the sacrifice of Jesus as an excuse 
for sin. And that's a tough thing. I'm not asking you to like it yet. I'm just asking you to be honest with yourself and say, okay. Words matter, don't they? Words have meanings, don't they? And we can't change the meanings when we don't like what the meaning tells us. Verse 29 through 30 makes it very clear that it is a warning for God's people. And the fourth thing, it suggests that God's standard under the new covenant is more strict than the old covenant. Verses 28 through 29 say that. Listen to the old covenant explanation. Anyone who, who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay? So, if you had set aside the law of Moses, the punishment for that was death. Right? But there had to be two or three witnesses, first-hand witnesses. Not, Dave came and told me about your sin, and so I went and told him that I knew. No, I saw it. And they're killed for that. They're stoned to death for that. Thank God. It's one of the differences in, in the new covenant and the old. We're no longer stoned to death for our sin. Hallelujah. All right. Come on. Hallelujah. All right. So we're no longer yet killed for our sin. But read verse 29 with me. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the son of god and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace the author is indicating that grace is tougher not easier this is something that jesus said over and over and over again he said you have heard it was written in days of old you shall not commit adultery but i say to you if you look with lust you're guilty of adultery already. Grace does not require less. It requires more. The blood of Jesus doesn't require less of us. It requires more of us. Because under the old covenant, we were not yet transformed. We had no way to follow God and have success and victory. But through the transforming work of Jesus Christ, we've been given power. To have victory over sin. And by golly, God expects us to try it now. This is tough. This is tough stuff. Are you open to it? Are you open to looking at this passage of Scripture? Are you open for the next few weeks for me to explore this and go through and teach you what's there and all of those things? Long before we can explore what this passage means for us as Christians, we must assess our initial reaction to it. This is important because only one reaction, only one state of mind will facilitate us being teachable as we study it. So what are the possible reactions that we can have to this passage? Again, I'm going to go over them. Number one possible reaction, a loving God would never punish us like this describes. You can have that reaction. And if you have that reaction, you've already decided that this doesn't apply to you. And so therefore, any teaching that I'm going to do over the next few weeks on this passage of Scripture is going to fall on deaf ears. 
This is really a rejection of the God of the Bible. This is a disbelief that God can be good and do this. You are basically saying, if you have this reaction, I don't believe in the God of the Bible. Because he says this, and clearly that's not true. You have created an idol in your mind that is not God. We're told in Isaiah that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. This is not a good reaction to have. Now, you might be having this reaction and it's okay. I don't expect you to change today. I'm going to get to how we want to work through this reaction thing at the end. Second reaction. You can have this reaction. And there's some of you I know that are having this reaction probably. God hates evil people. Of course he's going to smite you for your sin. You got a spirit of legalism, a spirit of religion. Come see me. I can cast that out of you. I'm not kidding. You are demonically influenced and I can help you to get free from it. If you have a spirit of legalism or a spirit of religion. You're you're engaged in spiritual warfare and you don't even realize it and we can help you get free. We have a team at our church who's trained to help people get free from this stuff. This is the Westboro Baptist viewpoint. Of course God's going to smite you. He hates you. That's not good. The third reaction... This passage doesn't have anything to do with me. This is the hyper grace message. Well, I'm a New Testament Christian. This doesn't have anything to do with me. You're not putting me back under law and bondage to legalism. That's a hyper grace message. The one that says that I can do whatever I want and there's no consequences for it is hyper grace. A.K.A. Gnosticism. It is a heresy. Now listen, grace is amazing. Grace is too good to be true. I'm not say, I'm not anti-grace. But grace is not an excuse to continue to live any way you want to live. The fourth reaction, it is what it is. I don't need to understand it. I just need to accept it. This is a spirit of complacency and lukewarmness. Thank you for being willing to accept it, but you do need to understand it. You need to take that acceptance a step further. How many of you, I should see every hand go up. I've already given you the answer to the test. How many of you did God give a brain to? Use it. Okay, you say, God, here's your truth. Now I'm going to use my brain to try to understand it as you empower me, right? Use it. God gave it to you for a reason. Can I get amen? Amen. All right. Or the fifth reaction. This passage is important. I believe it. And now I need to study it to understand it. This is the true disciples reaction. Now, understand, if you're not having that reaction, I'm not saying you're not a disciple of Jesus. 
I'm saying when you are at your best as a disciple of the Lord, this is your reaction. Okay? Because I believe I'm a disciple of Jesus, but I tried to explain linguistically why this was for unbelievers. Okay? Couldn't do it, so I'm like, and I know that it's true. Right? It's a hard pill to swallow. This is, this is the John 6, 60 passage. This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And many of his disciples walked away from him. And Jesus turned and looked at the twelve and he said, Are you two also going to leave? And they said, No, Lord, where would we go? For you alone have the words of life. They're saying, Jesus, this is tough. Man, this message doesn't feel good. We don't like what this says. But we believe you. Help us to understand. These are the reaction. This is the reaction that we need to work our way to. Is this fifth one? Now listen, I don't think you're evil if you had reaction number one, two, three, or four. God doesn't think you're evil if you have reaction number one, two, three, or four. But what he wants from you, I can assure you, I guarantee you this is what God wants. He wants you to accept his truth and then study it to come to understand it. He tells us that in the scripture, to study because we're a workman approved. Not so that we'll be approved, but because we are. We talked about that last week, right? We're already approved of by God. As his children, we're positionally holy, and now we need to study, do our best to present ourselves as a workman approved. We need to get into his word. The scripture tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training in righteousness. For those of you who know that passage, am I lying? Is all scripture God-breathed and useful for training in righteousness? If it is, say amen including this passage. It is, it is God-breathed and it is useful for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness, my friends, is for God's people. Lost people are going to act lost. Oh, I'll say it a different way. Heathens are going to act like heathens and I don't expect anything less from them. And neither should you. Pagans are going to be paganistic. And that's just part of it. So I'm going to do something that I rarely do for homework this week. I want you to read Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 31, every day. Every day for homework this week. One of the fiercest, most harsh, most strict, most scary passages in the New Testament. And I want you to do, while you're reading it, this is the important part that you need to get a hold of. You need to tell God your struggles. Tell Him. He can handle it. He loves you. He can handle your fears. He can handle your doubts. He does not want you to walk away feeling condemned and ashamed. Hear me. Everybody look me in the face real quick while you're writing. Don't, don't stop writing. God does not want you to feel ashamed or condemned. You hearing me? Yeah. 
So tell him your struggles. Tell him all of those things. Amen, my little brother. Give me one. I'm going to get, I may have to wait 20 years, but I'm going to get you guys trained to, to amen one way or the other. We need to confess our fears, confess our concerns, confess whatever feelings we have, and then ask him to change our hearts to one of openness. Now, Mark, I want you to speak really loud. Did I ask you to sing the song that you're going to sing as the closing song? Did I ask you to put that on there? Okay, we're singing Open the Eyes of My Heart as our closing song. I think that's God. I didn't tell Mark. Mark didn't read my sermon. And what the application of the sermon is, is God open the eyes of my heart. I'm struggling. I have this reaction. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to be teachable. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up. I want to see you in this. I want you to be glorified. I want to follow you. Open my eyes. I want you to read this fearful passage every single day this week. And when you get afraid, when you find something that just sticks in your crawl, when you find something that makes you mad, when you find something that you want to reject, whatever it is, you say, Jesus, here's, my, here's how I'm reacting to this, but I know you want me to be teachable, so help me deal with this. Help me. Does that make sense? The Lord made me read a book this week called Hyper Grace. I've never heard of the book before Monday night. We went down to Pittsburgh. I'm going to do a little bragging here. My daughter got inducted into the National Honor Society on Monday night. So we, thanks. She got it from her mama. So we went down to have her inducted, and we and Family Christian Store there in Cranberry Township is over right across from where she was inducted at. We said, we're going to go over there afterwards. I just felt like we were supposed to go over there. I didn't know what for. And, and as my daughter and my wife are walking around in the bookstore looking, I am drawn over to this section of the store, and there's this yellow book that says Hyper Grace. And, the Lord, and I feel like the Lord says, I want you to buy that book. I'm like... Well, let me see what it's about. I read a little bit of it, and I'm like, I'm not buying that. And I put it back on the shelf. And so I'm walking around looking. I'm like, I need to find something here, you know. I'm, I get a month off from school here and, and at the end of this week, so I need to have something like to read and all this stuff. And the Lord's like, I, I told you to buy that book. And so me being the, the just the wonderful son of God that I am, I decide to read some more of it before I make up my mind. So obedient, aren't I? So I go, and I kind of start, I can't even find a chair to sit down in the store. I'm like, man. So finally I find a chair, and I'm sitting there, and I read this book, and as I'm reading, I'm like, I don't really need this book. And I feel like the Lord said, you buy the book. And you read it cover to cover before you write your sermon. So I, fin- I planned on reading the book in one setting on Tuesday. I got halfway through. Then I planned on finishing on Wednesday. And I got some more done, but I didn't get done. And then I planned on finishing on Thursday, and I got like all but 20 pages done. So I had to finish on Friday. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I've read the book. 
Thanks, I still don't have a sermon prepared. We're driving back from uh, Clarion, eating at Applebee's with a friend for their birthday celebration, and it dawns on me what I'm supposed to preach about. Our reaction to the message. Because before we can dig into the message, we need to know what our reaction is. We need to discover our own starting point. We're driving back. Sarah and I are not talking about the sermon. We're not talking about church. We're talking about something else. I'm driving, and it's like that whole bing, light comes on, you know, and I'm like, I know. And I looked at Sarah, and I said, I know I'm supposed to preach about it on Sunday. She goes, you're not preaching Hebrews 10, 26 through 31? I said, yes, but I mean, I know how I'm supposed to approach it. So I spent yesterday writing the sermon. I think God's at work here. So we're going to pray. We're going to ask the band to come back forward. We're going to sing Open the Eyes of My Heart, but we're going to sing it as a prayer to God. God, open my eyes. Help me to understand what you want me to understand. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we confess to you that this is a tough, tough passage of Scripture. And we ask you to speak to us. Open our eyes that we might see what you want us to see. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.